taken from Ruth chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 11 verses 1 to 6. If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to these passages. Let us commence reading from Ruth chapter 3 verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing to barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man, until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true, I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer near, nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, he will redeem you. Good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, This six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, 
Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter eleven, and we will commence reading from verse one. Hebrews chapter eleven, verse one. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up, so that he could not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw to God must believe that He exists, and that He rewards those who seek Him. This is the word of God. The reading was so good that we wanted Uncle Boon Cheng to do it twice.、Uh, big warm welcome to everyone here this morning, to everyone here at Esley Church at Ryan's Road, and everyone at home、uh, on the、uh, meeting together in home groups, and even for those who are still meeting individually、um, in their own homes, a big warm welcome to you as well.、Um, my name is Stephen, one of the pastors of the church.、Uh, it was my joy and privilege to marry Joachim and Rigel yesterday, so、uh, congratulations to them again. They will get a bit of a, a, a nod in the sermon too before we, as we get into it.、Um, keep your Bibles open with you、uh, to Ruth chapter three. We're going to glance at it. We're going to read one section, but glance through it、uh, a couple of times, dip into the story as we walk through it.、Um, and if you don't have an outline, there is one、uh, on the church website,、um, as well as one sent out via、uh, the link sent out via the Facebook group and even the WhatsApp chat、um, group. Uh, so uh, there's ways to be able to find the bulletin there too. Let me pray, and let me ask God to bless us now as we look at His Word. Our gracious Father, thank you again that you preserve your Word for us, that you give it to us and speak to us, and we pray that you will help us now,、uh, whether we have sleepy heads、uh, or we're trying to still wake up,、um, as we're gathering now and settling down to hear your Word. We pray for your Spirit's help, help us to hear you speak to us. Help us to receive this word with soft hearts. Help us, Father, to respond in a faith that is that is alive and active. So we pray, Father, that you'll bless us as we read this word and hear from this word today, in Jesus' most beautiful name. Amen. Three weddings in three weeks. Two weeks ago, I officiated the wedding of Tim and Claire Dunn. Yesterday, I married Joakim and Rigel Tan. And this afternoon, I will be conducting the wedding of Leon and Zoe Tang. Tim and Claire met while studying dentistry at university. It was awkward at first, 
but Tim was eventually able to win Claire over. Claire loves to paint. Tim is not a painter. And so one day they were painting together and Tim just wrote the words, will you marry me onto the canvas? And of course, she ended up saying yes. Joachim and Rigel met while Joachim was helping to move house for Rigel. Eventually, Joachim got around to asking Rigel out for a breakfast date. And while they had their, have had their personality clashes, they've been able to steadily work them through. And yesterday, they were married in a wondrous, gospel-centered, beautiful marriage, uh, ceremony. Leon and Zoe, they met online. And as they slowly got to know each other, they learned a great deal about each other's warmth and their caring personalities and how much they love spending time together. Leon says that the day he asked Zoe to marry him is a day he will never regret. And when I meet each couple to walk them through premarital counseling and to plan their wedding ceremony, I always ask who popped the question and how did they do it? And it's usually a, a really nice and sometimes quite cute story, always enjoyable to listen to, and each story is unique. But I tell you what, none of them, and none of the couples I've ever married, none of the couples I've ever spoken to or have ever known personally, have shared a story like Ruth and how Ruth and Boaz met and got engaged. It's a bit of a strange story, isn't it? There's some strange plans to begin with, uh, mixed in there by a mother-in-law. I, I want to make a joke there, but I'm, I'm going to hold off and hold my tongue. Um, strange plans to begin with, a mystery rendezvous between a much older man and a much younger woman, and the whole thing is shrouded in darkness and secrecy. But in this strange story in Ruth chapter 3, what we have for ourselves is actually a picture of faith. Faith exemplified in five ways. Five ways that we can see faith at work. And by the end of today, hopefully, we'll also walk our way with a renewed sense of how our faith is to be expressed. Well, the story begins in chapter, one, verses one to, uh, ch- uh, chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, uh, with a bit of a strange plan. So read it again with me uh, in verses 1 to 4. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So, a few details here to notice in in the text. Uh, Firstly, Naomi wants to seek rest for Ruth, rest from her gleaning, rest from her widowhood. It's it's sort of what she wanted for her when she arrived back in Bethlehem, praying for her daughters, that her daughters would find rest with a new husband. You remember that in chapter 1, as they were journeying away from Moab, she stopped, turned to her daughters and said, go home and find rest with a new husband. Uh, this, search, the search, this search for rest continues, and so Naomi is now plotting a way for Ruth to find a new husband, the man Boaz, their relative. Then we're told that Ruth is to wash, anoint herself, and put on her cloak. Now, if you have an NIV translation, the phrase, put on your best clothes, I do think is wrong here. Uh, Naomi is not dressing up as a bride. 
uh, and she's not dressing up to kind of say, hey, hey, look at me. Uh, we're not to imagine this scene as though she's turning up to the threshing floor in a big white gown. Uh, the idea here is Naomi, I think, is telling Ruth it's time to put away her garments of mourning. Probably until this point, she's actually been wearing the garments of the widow in mourning for her husband. And that actually might explain why Boaz has not made a move on her for the last couple of months. He recognizes that she's still mourning for her husband. So Naomi tells her to put the mourning clothes away, dress for normal life again, and then head down to the threshing floor quietly. Now, the threshing floor was the place where you would separate the grain and the barley from the husk and the stalks. So she's to go down there quietly and observe the place where he ends up lying down for sleep. And when he's done, Ruth is to creep over in verse 4, uncover his feet and lie down next to him. Now, the, the idea of uncovering his feet and lying down next to him, wow, that is, there is massive debates about what this all means. Uh, uncovering someone's garments, uncovering someone's feet like that is often a prelude to sex. The, the phrase to lie down with someone is often a euphemism for sex. So what Naomi's planning here sounds a bit dodgy, but from what we know of Naomi, Ruth and Boaz, there's no reason to think that this is actually dodgy. It does, however, sound like a bit of a strange plan. Because at the end of verse 4, Naomi says, he will tell you what to do. Naomi seems to trust Boaz is a worthy man and will do what is right. And then in verses 5 and 6, Ruth agrees to the plan and carries it out. Now, in the new heavens and the new earth, I'm hoping to ask some questions of some famous characters in the Bible. I've got a long list. And when I meet Ruth, I really want to ask her, and you went along with this, why? I, I'm not sure any of us would put our daughters or our sisters in this sort of situation. And I'm kind of glad that none of us really ever have to. If you're thinking about it, please come and speak to Ben and I. But for Ruth and Naomi, this is almost a do or die situation. Their lives and their futures are really on the line. So this plan of Naomi's is delicate and there are some obvious potentials for disaster. I mean, from purely, a purely human perspective, Naomi is taking a huge gamble that Boaz will interpret all of this in the right way and that he won't take advantage of Ruth in the secrecy of the moment. But in these opening verses, we, we learn our first big lesson about faith. Faith is intentional. Naomi made a plan and a daring one at that. Faith is a deliberate choice to reach out, not just a passive waiting for things to happen to you. Naomi's plan is daring, but she is deliberately reaching out. Her plan might be a bit vague, a bit ambiguous, have some overtones of dodginess about it, but when she says that, <clears throat> when she says that Boaz will tell Ruth what to do, she is exercising faith. Faith that Boaz will do what is right. Faith that the God who has providentially ordered everything so far will do what is right. And when Ruth says, all that you say, I will do, it's almost as if the narrator breaks the fourth wall and he looks directly at us from the pages and asks, would you trust God to do to the way that these women do? Then in verse 7, we read that Naomi's projection of what Boaz would do comes true. He's eaten and drunk and his heart is merry. He's not drunk, drunk, 
uh, but I, I think we meant to picture a man who's now fairly contented. Uh, it's been a big harvest, and now it's done. He's had a couple of drinks over dinner, probably with his servants again, and he's ready for a big night of rest. Now, why is he choosing to sleep next to a pile of grain? No idea, but maybe to protect it. But notice here the constant details that highlight the secrecy of this meeting between Ruth and Boaz, especially because the last time they met, it was all in the daytime, right? They met in the open, in the harvest, in public. Now it's nighttime, it's dark. He's at the far end of the threshing floor, away from earshot. Ruth is not to announce her presence, but to remain in the shadows. And so, by the end of verse 7, the moment is here. Will this tipsy man do what is right, or will he read Ruth's invitation wrong and take advantage of her? Before we move on to the rest of the story, here's another brief picture of faith. Faith is vulnerable. What Ruth does here is very risky. She's an unaccompanied young woman going, after, going out after dark to a harvest threshing floor full of relaxed and off-duty men. Remember, this is the time of the judges. Ruth is, doing all, Ruth is doing all of this and running the big risk of drunken abuse. But in doing all that, Naomi planned, uh, but in doing all that Naomi planned, Ruth has abandoned all safety and security that she might have held on to. She is vulnerable. And she is going to trust herself to one redeemer, believing that he will protect her and he will treat her right. That's scary stuff. But she's got no other hope. So in verse 8, Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night with a jump. The warm spring evening has given way to the cold midnight air. And he, as he searches for a blanket to cover himself, he notices a woman sleeping at his feet. And so he naturally asks what all of us would ask. Who are you? And pay close attention now to what Ruth replies in verse 9. Remember, Naomi said to her, Boaz will tell you what to do. But in verse 9, Ruth takes the initiative. <clears throat> she seizes the moment. She not only identifies herself, I am Ruth, your servant, but then she turns the question back on him. He asked her, who are you? And she says, who are you? You are a redeemer so redeem me. And when she says, spread your wings over your servant, there's a glorious multi-layered ambiguity to the phrase. On one level, the word wings is the same word used in chapter 2, verse 12. There, Boaz praised Ruth for coming under the wings of God and seeking refuge. Here, Ruth is asking Boaz to take her under his wings, like a mother bird, and assume responsibility for her security. On another level, the word wings could also refer to the corner of your skirt or your garment. And so to be covered by the garment was often a euphemism for marriage. Ruth is proposing to Boaz. And notice on what basis she is proposing marriage. In verse 9, she's not asking Boaz to spread his wings because she thinks he's kind of cute, she, or she likes him, or she's attracted to him. She asks Boaz to do what he should be doing because he's a redeemer. And take a step back for a moment. 
And think about that. What Ruth does here is stunning on so many levels. She demands her boss to marry her. She, a Moabite, is asking an Israelite for marriage. A woman is proposing to a man. A poor person is demanding security and marriage from a rich person. Stunning. And from this, we can learn another thing about faith. Faith is grounded in covenant promises. Our faith is often spoken of as a purely subjective personal quality. I have faith, some sort of amount of it, or something that we feel, something that some people seem to have more than others. But in Ruth chapter 3, we're being reminded that faith is a conscious decision to trust what God has promised. See, Ruth's appeal to Boaz is not based on some sort of chemistry between them. We don't know what they thought of each other. Her appeal is based on her covenant relationship with him. He was a relative of Elimelech. Being their guardian redeemer, their kinsman redeemer, Boaz is obligated under the covenant to now marry Ruth and to have children to continue Elimelech's name. Ruth's faith calls on Boaz to do what the law said he must. Now, how will Boaz respond to all of this? Oh, we read in verse 10, he blesses her in Yahweh's name. He hasn't done anything to shoo her away. He blesses her for her kindness, her hesed. This hesed, this covenantal kindness, a love and love is expressed here in such a big way. See, Boaz recognizes this. He says to her at the end of verse 10 that this kindness is greater than her first, the kindness that she showed to Naomi. But Boaz is saying that this moment here in Ruth 3 is kinder than what she has shown and done to Naomi. Why? Because in verse, at the end of verse 10, we read that she didn't go after the younger men. Whether rich or poor, Ruth actually had plenty of options. But be, she has chosen Boaz instead because he was a redeemer. Now, here's how Ruth is showing kindness to Naomi. See, if Ruth got married to one of the other younger men... We don't know who, right? The guy, the guy with the, the question mark. If she had a child with that man, that child would belong to her husband. But if Boaz carried out his job as redeemer, then the child would actually be Naomi's child and it would continue her line. Boaz makes this connection very quickly, which is why he blesses her and says that this kindness that she is showing now to him is greater than the first. Ruth has already shown remarkable kindness to Naomi, the first kindness, but now she's going another step further in her love and loyalty to Naomi by taking the initiative and asking Boaz to marry her. See, the love story in this book, it's not really between Ruth and Boaz. It's between Ruth and Naomi. So Boaz makes a big promise. He promises to do everything that she's asking for. He, he, calls her Ruth, he calls Ruth a worthy woman. The exact word worthy that we read of Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1. 
almost as if the narrator is hinting that these two worthy people in some ways are meant to be together. But there's a complication. Always a third wheel in these kind of relationships. There's another guy in the picture, another redeemer who is closer in line than he is. He has the first right to, be, to redeem Ruth. So Boaz promises again to find this man, settle this matter, and if this other redeemer won't do his job, then Boaz surely will. So here, at the end of point two on the outline, we learn one other thing about faith. Faith is effective. The redeemer will accept the claims of faith. When Boaz the redeemer is called upon to fulfill his covenant duties, he does not hesitate. Faith is the, in the right thing is truly effective. Faith in the Redeemer is truly effective because he will not delay to carry out what he has been called to do. But all that said, it's still nighttime. Boaz can't solve the problem right now, so they lie down again until morning. But before anyone else is up to recognize them, he gives her six measures of barley and she heads back home. The barley here at the end is another important little theme in this book. Boaz is not just showing more generosity, but there's a, a nice little play on words. Because at the beginning of the book, Naomi said that she went away full, but Yahweh brought her back empty. Now, at the end here, her hands are full of barley. Ruth said, uh, Boaz, Boaz told, us, told me you must not go back empty-handed. It's, it's this, this fullness here at the end is almost like the, the first fruits of the fullness to come. But for now, at the end of the passage, Naomi says that they need to wait on Boaz because he will surely settle the matter. Will Boaz find the Redeemer in time? Will Boaz be able to negotiate with him? We really do want Ruth and Boaz to get together. They are both worthy people after all. But will this other redeemer get in the way? Tune in next week as we finish off this short little book, which leads us to the final point about faith today. Faith is patient. It involves waiting. Because faith is not by sight. It carries with it a waiting for resolution. And while waiting, Ruth and Naomi have to rest on the character of their Redeemer. On, and because this Redeemer is a worthy man, Naomi can say with confidence that he will not rest until the matter is settled. You know, the book of Ruth is, is often painted as this love story. Uh, there's a meme running around that uses Ruth as wisdom and advice for relationships. Ruth waited patiently for her Boaz. And so while you're waiting for your Boaz, don't settle for his relatives. Broke as, dumb as, lazy as, and on and on, right? And, and, and as funny as that is, and, and there may be some wisdom to it, let me be clear that I think that's actually a terrible way to read the book of Ruth. It's a terrible way to apply the book of Ruth. See, for one, we never read that Ruth waited for her Boaz, as though her greatest desire was for a relationship and she waited on God to bring the right man into her life. I, I do think it's a little bit unhelpful to be digging through this story for tips on boy and girl relationships. 
In fact, I don't think the book of Ruth has any real advice on relationships and love at all. Not unless you're living around 3,000 years ago, have recently lost your husband, and your mother-in-law suggests that it might be a good idea to meet with a much older man who happens to be your kinsman redeemer in a dark, secluded spot after he's had a few drinks. Now, this book doesn't really offer much relationship advice for single guys or girls. It's not quite the love story that maybe we thought it was. But what Ruth chapter 3 does show us is how much a part of the big grand story of Scripture it is in. The big grand story of God drawing a people to himself to know him and to be blessed by him. The big grand story of how he would choose a tiny nation and would one day include other people, Gentiles, as his people. Ruth a Gentile Moabite, someone who was outside the covenant of God with Israel, someone who was separated from God, alienated and a stranger to the covenant of God with Israel, a person who had no hope and was without God in the world. By faith, she has been brought near. I mean, this is pretty much what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 about us. See, Ruth's unique story of inclusion is our wondrous story of inclusion. The story of Ruth kind of prefigures in a small way what God will do later in a big way through the gospel of his son Jesus Christ. See what Ruth is able to do here in this story reveals God's ultimate plan to bring more like her into his kingdom. By faith now in Jesus Christ, anyone, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, poor or rich, can find refuge under God's wings. They simply need to hear the gospel, believe it, and trust it. And that trust, that faith, shows itself in action. Her, her faith in this passage is, a, is the kind of faith expressed in Hebrews 11, read out for us by Uncle Bun Cheng before. A faith which has assurance of the things hoped for, the conviction of the things not seen, and a faith revealed in actions. When you read through the rest of that chapter in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, those who believe and trust God live it out. Ruth chapter 3 has showed us five ways that her faith revealed itself in action. So let's walk through them once again and think of what it means for us as Christians today. Number one, first we saw that faith was intentional. Faith is not a lazy kicking back on your couch, waiting for God to drop something into your lap. Faith is active. Like the pedals on a bicycle, the Bible tells us that faith is both a gift from God, something that we can't manufacture or exercise by our willpower alone. It is a gift of God, and yet at the same time, it's something that we also actively do. And so like the pedals of a bicycle, we need both to move forward. You can't ride a bike with just one foot. God gifts it to us, and we exercise it. So how intentional is your faith? There's, I think, two ways that we don't live out an intentional faith. One, maybe some of us are people who don't tend to do anything. We're constantly just waiting for something to happen to us. Or 
we're people who go about our own lives and do our own thing, but faith just does not factor into how we go about our plans. And so when we make plans about where we live, what job we will take, even what, stu- what we will study and where, when, we make, when we're making plans about these things, we think first about what we want, what we would like, what our dreams are, and then God and faith kind of come along for the ride. How many of us are making plans in life like that? If faith is to be intentional, it needs to be put into the middle. If faith is to be intentional, it needs to be the thing that drives our plans. Number two, faith is vulnerable. It abandons all security and safety, anchored in this world, and entrusts itself to our Redeemer. Hand in hand with being, faith being intentional is to remember that faith makes us vulnerable. So when we trust ourselves to our Redeemer, Jesus, we have to believe that he will protect us, that he will do what is good for us, and remember that there is nowhere else we can go to for this kind of hope. There is a feeling of safety that we have in this world. We have to think about what you lean on to give you comfort and security. Is it when you open up your bank app on your phone and check out how much savings you've got or the investment app as you watch your portfolio grow? Is it knowing that you're living in a good suburb with good schools for your kids? As a student, is it knowing that you have a strong sense of belonging with all of your peers? Now, while these are not necessarily bad things, faith calls on us to let go of these security and these safety anchors. Because faith calls us to shape our lives around the gospel, to have a gospel-shaped life, a life where our decisions and our choices are informed and shaped by the gospel. And when that happens, it might mean letting go of the things where we find safety and security. When we are called to trust and be faithful to Jesus, sometimes we will need to trust that God will take care of our future that he will take care of our children, that he will take care of our parents, and that he will take care of us. So how willing are you to be vulnerable when having faith and living faithfully means letting go of what you find security and comfort in? Number three, faith is grounded in covenant promises. Faith is not just the subjective feeling that we have, Uh, Faith calls on God to fulfill his promises based on his covenant with us. See, God has committed himself to us in Jesus. And so faith drives us to ask God what he has promised to us in the gospel. And think about what God has promised to us in the gospel. He promises refuge for all who come under his wings. He promises forgiveness by his blood. He promises his Holy Spirit to dwell within. He promises us that no one can snatch him out of our hand, his hands. He promises that any suffering and pain we go through in life will pale to the glory and the joy to come. He promises to build his church. And he promises one day to return, bringing heaven with him and that we will reign with him forevermore. We are to take what God has promised and call on God in our prayers to fulfill those promises to us. See, not in the sense that 
He hasn't done those things like forgiveness of sin. But in the sense that when you sin and, and you grieve your sins and you are deeply and genuinely repentant, then you can pray that God will forgive you as he has promised to. Now, before I'm misunderstood, I am not saying that we should name it and claim it like they do in the prosperity gospel. In the prosperity gospel, claims are made on promises God has never made, treating God as a genie in the bottle, and requesting things to be spent on our self-centered desires. What we here are being encouraged to today is to claim what God has actually promised to us in the gospel, in his covenant with us. Uh, let me give some, uh, some exam uh, one example of how this works. For instance, this is going to make a big difference to the way that we pray. Uh, so if you're praying, if we're praying for someone who is sick, we're not only going to pray for their healing, which is a good thing, and you can and should be praying for that, but we're also going to be praying for faithful endurance for peace in the gospel which rises above physical pain, to pray that God will not waste this suffering and use it to glorify himself. See, this is what faith grounded in covenant promises looks like. So have a think about when it comes to other areas of life, what we will encourage our children towards in terms of their studies or their career choices or their hobbies and interests, how we pray in response to tragedy, but also what we pray and ask God for our loved ones. How, our, how is our encouragement and prayer life and other areas of life showing that our faith is grounded in what God has promised to us in the gospel? Number four, faith in Jesus is effective. Right? When we ground our faith in what God has promised to us in our Redeemer, and then when we call on our Redeemer, He will respond the words from boaz to ruth do not be afraid i will do for you all that you ask comes more definitely and immediately from the lips of jesus in mark chapter 1 verse 40 to 41 a leper asked jesus if you will you can make me clean and jesus response is i will be clean Friends, in Jesus, we have a Redeemer who accepts claims of faith. When we ask Jesus to do what he has promised, then he will not hesitate. So friends, do you expect your prayers to be effective? When you ask for forgiveness, do you believe that Jesus hesitates to wash you clean? When you ask for the Spirit's help, do you think that Jesus might say no? No, whatever Jesus has promised to us in his word, he will not hesitate to give us. Now that assumes that we know the word well enough to know what Jesus has promised. But that should drive us to know the Bible better so that we can call on Jesus to do whatever he has said he will do. Finally, number five, faith is patient. It involves waiting. Faith is effective, but most often we need to wait. See, over the past few weeks, I've had the great joy and privilege of marrying a number of couples, and all of them have had to wait for their wedding days to arrive. Some of the couples were anxious 
Others were just relieved that the day was over, camp was arrived and all the preparation was over. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12, Paul says of Corinth that he betrothed them to one husband to present them as a pure virgin to Christ. He's saying that the church is engaged to Jesus. Now, if you run with me for a moment, and especially for the guys, try and remove notions of romance and sex. But as a church, as God's people, we're all waiting for that day when Jesus returns, when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, when the day of the marriage of Jesus and his bride, the church, comes about, when we will see him face to face, when our bodies will be redeemed, all pain and suffering will be removed, and our joy will be restored and secured forevermore. That is the day we are all waiting for. And we can wait with assurance, with confidence, because our waiting is resting on the character of our Redeemer. And because our Redeemer is a worthy man, an infinitely worthy man, we can say with confidence that he will not leave us nor forsake us. And in the meantime, it is necessary to wait because waiting, faith involves waiting. And as we wait for a resolution to our story, let us keep reflecting on these five portraits of faith that we've seen in Ruth chapter 3. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks so much for this small book which is revealing so much about who you are and how we are to respond well. So we pray that these, these images of, of faith, these portraits of faith, that they will be taken seriously by us and that we'll reflect on our own lives and how much we are trusting your son Jesus and how much we are living uh, that faith and that trust out in our actions. Father, give us this work in our lives that we might do all these things to your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.